When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host this hour, John Emmerich, and I'm with one of the co-authors of Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. Professor Haskell, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself and your current Thank you positions? very much for having me on, John. I'm Jonathan Haskell. I'm a professor of economics at Imperial College, which is in London, England, and part-time at the Bank of England. Uh, and my book is co-written uh, with my co-author, Stian Westlake, who's the chief executive officer of the Royal Statistical Society, also based in London. Perfect. Thank you so much for talking to us today. The two of you also co-author the 2018 book, Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy, which I had the pleasure of reading before I read the new book. That wasn't that long ago. What was the impetus for coming Thanks up with the much, second book? very John. Yeah. In the first book, we documented, well, as it very much says on the title, how the intangible economy uh, was a new feature, possibly a slightly unnoticed feature, uh, and was a description of how the economy has changed over the last sort of 20, 30 years. Um, and in the second book, we've documented some of the features which we think are interesting and have followed from that. Uh, the main one of which is that the transition from a tangible to an intangible economy seemed to stall around the time of the financial crisis and has carried on, we think, stalling as well. So what we've tried to write in the new book is a little bit of a revision about why we think the intangible economy is important, but mostly an attempt to try to describe why we think the intangible economy or that transition to the intangible economy has stalled somewhat and what we might do about it. And you're very much carving out new territory here with this topic as a, within economics. Going back to the first book, as an introduction, how are intangible assets defined? What do you want the reader to think about when they hear intangible assets? And what does an intangible rich economy look no, like absolutely. just from a high level? Here's a way to think about it. Think about 
companies of old. Think about steel companies, um, the, the beginnings of car companies. They both used and produced very tangible things. That is to say, they used machines, they used buildings, they used vehicles, and they produced very tangible kind of output, tons of steel, uh, um, uh, numbers of cars. Now think about modern day companies. Take, for example, the top companies by market value. They are companies like Microsoft or Apple or Google uh, or Amazon. And ask yourself, what do those companies use to produce and what do they actually produce? So if you think about Google, what they produce is nothing very tangible at all. In fact, something very intangible. Namely, they have a reputation for reliable search engines, uh, and they have a reputation for giving you, you know, a very fast answer. And 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 in order to produce those intangible goods, they're using very intangible assets, which is to say, they're using software, they're using algorithms. They're using very fast computers. The fast computers is probably more of a tangible asset, having said said that. But the software and the databases and the algorithms which run on all of that are very much intangible. So what we uh, think is, is interesting and important is that the economy has undergone a transition from uh, that very tangible activity to the much more intangible activity. And, and in, in the hope, John, of making that kind of salient to many of your listeners, there's a sense in which the very podcast and the very profession that you have as a podcast host and that I have as a university lecturer is a very intangible kind of thing. We're dealing in ideas, we're dealing in in, in knowledge, hopefully new knowledge. <laughs> uh, <coughs> we're dealing in establishing those kinds of networks and establishing that kind of reputation. Um, all of those things are very intangible. And we think that's the, an important transition at which modern economies have been on for a number of years now. So everything from software, R&D, you even talk about business models, but what it would exclude as a securities analyst would be this category of goodwill, which ironically is created by acquisitions and becomes a line down specifically because it can't be attached to yes, any so, asset. So I, I didn't answer satisfactorily what you just uh, asked me earlier on, which is to categorize the intangible assets. Let me say a word about that and say a word about goodwill. So so we mean the range of knowledge assets. So software, R&D would be obvious knowledge assets as well. So would training, tr training done by um, firms uh, to get their uh, workers to understand their internal uh, businesses is important. Business processes would be extraordinarily important. After all, Tim Cook, the head of Apple, uh, wasn't Apple's best designer. He was actually their supply chain manager. So that would be another example of an intangible asset. Um, and design, of course, if we're talking about Apple as an example, uh, that would be an example of an intangible asset a, a, as well. Now, if I may, John, you, you touched upon goodwill. So I'll say a word about that, if I may, which is that um, goodwill is often what sort of accountants use for intangible assets, management accountants, when they sort of don't quite know what to measure. So I don't know, if you retire as a dentist and sell your dental practice, uh, it's got a lot of tangible assets, maybe the building, maybe all the equipment that you've got, but often the sale of the business exceeds the sheer value of the 
into, uh, of the tangible assets. And that difference is logged by accountants as goodwill. Uh, and that's often described as some measure of their intangible assets in the business. So, for example, if the dentist has got a particularly good reputation with all sorts of local people, uh, you know, who like going locally to it and taking the children there and all that kind of thing, um, th then you would imagine that would be like an intangible asset. So I think those goodwill measures are designed to get at some of the value of the firm over and above the tangible assets. And so they are indeed measures of intangibles, but they're sort of point in time measures of intangibles and obviously depend upon the extent to which markets um, correctly perceive and correctly measure uh, all of these intangible values. So it's just one way of trying to value the intangibles that are in a firm. We're going to get to measurement and valuation in a, in a minute. But first, you talk about the four characteristics of intangibles in the first book and again in the second, the traits that make intangible assets behave differently, scalability, sunk cost, spillovers, and synergies. And I've spent the most time thinking about the last two. My first reaction was that spillovers aren't exclusively good or bad from the general public's perspective. They might be good until you brought up synergies. And I saw this gray area between them, it seems to me. Can you describe spillovers and, and synergies in the intangible world? And if it's deemed desirable, is there a way to create more synergies and fewer spillovers? Yeah. So spillovers, um, you, you know, let's go back to a kind of technology example, which would be the iPhone. If listeners cast their mind back to what smartphones looked like before the iPhone, they had these kind of weird keyboards on and you know little aerials which would stick out and you had to sort of flip open flip open you know coverings on them and speak into the uh, into the resulting uh, bit of plastic which you flipped open and all that kind of thing within about 18 months of the launch of the iPhone basically every smartphone looked like the iPhone so that's an example of a spillover of an intangible asset. The intangible asset was the design of the iPhone. And the spillover was that basically within 18 months, as I was saying, kind of more or less everybody took up uh, uh, that design. So, so that, that would be an example of a, of a spillover. A synergy comes from the combination of these different intangible assets together. So again, if I stick with an Apple example, um, What's, I think, kind of amazing about the success of the iPhone is not actually just the design, but it is the synergies, the combination of all the different intangible assets that make up, that kind of go into the iPhone. So it's the combination of the soft, the Apple software that runs it. It's the combination of the various databases, which do all the optimization. It's the combination of that with the supply chain management. I mentioned Tim Cook earlier on, um, who's a great expert on all this sort of stuff. Um, so it's a combination of all those different things. So all of those synergies uh, combined together, and and we think that the 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 addition of those synergies sums up to more than the sum of the parts, if if you see what I mean. Uh, and that's the sort of foundation of success um, for these uh, incredibly uh, successful firms. But does 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 that make sense? It, it does, and and the iPhone example is such a great one because we can all understand it. Um, is there a role in positive spillovers? for ESG mandates that I may have read about somewhere yes. in the book? Um, we, so we think of ESG as being in some ways a sort of sub-case 
of intangibles. I know that's a bit imperialistic of me to sort of <laughs> to sort of uh, you know shovel everything into an intangibles framework. So I'm afraid you're going to have to be patient. But l- let me try to defend myself for a second. Um, so if I think of environmental, you know, social and governance I- issues, um, now it's very difficult, of course, to measure all of these things. And there's rightly, I think a bit of cynicism about how the choice of measures obscures the um, ability of people uh, uh, to compare different ESG metrics. But but broadly speaking, quite a lot of those ESG metrics sort of fit within an intangibles sort of measure. So if you think about governance, for example, um, good governance is part of managing a company. It's part of managing the supply chain. I mentioned that earlier on. It's part of the kind of organizational capital, if you will, um, of a firm. So that would be one example of that. Um, the, 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 on the um, sort of social issues, uh, many ESG metrics have training, actually, uh, as a measure of those sort of social issues. Many other ESG metrics have got a lot of software measurement to them as well, actually, um, the amount that uh, companies spend, for example, on software security and those kind of issues as well. So um, I think of ESG as fitting quite naturally into an intangibles framework. It's part of the branding and the reputation, so it's an important intangible asset. Uh, and as I say, John, even some of the ESG metrics are in, in many ways almost exactly the kind of intangible metrics uh, that we're trying to measure as well. Right. And, and just talking about ESG just increases the timeliness of the, the topic of the book because ESG is on everybody's mind. I can tell you as a board director on, on funds, we now talk about it quarterly. Um, let's jump for a second to a big topic, public funding of research and development, an area that a lot of analysts think about when talking about intangible assets. You write about public funding for intangibles not working due to perverse rules or outdated models. And as luck would have it, as I was reading your first book a little over a month ago, there was an article in The Economist about Britain's Advanced Research and Invention Agency, a research funding organization. It's a government agency, but it claims among its strengths to be independent from government interference. Is that relevant to this topic? What do you think about that entity? I half expected to see your names associated in some way as I started through the first couple paragraphs of the article. You're very kind, John. Um, You know, I I have to stress that uh, Stian Westlake, my co-author, and I, you know, we're very important, but we're not that important. So so on the ARPA, no, it's a a terrific example, actually. So um, hopefully this will help people uh, uh, sort of navigate through that. Um, so let's step back for a second. So even the most fervent kind of market economist would admit that there is a role for public support for R&D and innovation. And it comes from the spillover idea. Um, if you think about a lot of the very basic science that people do. I don't know, go back to the space program, think about the material science uh, that was done in the space program, which, uh, you know, developed the heat shields for the rockets and all that kind of thing, or, or you know, the, the, the email type of applications, which came, at, which came out of DARPA, those things spill over to everybody else. You know, the email protocols are made freely available. The formulae for, um, uh, uh, um, you you know, for for some of these materials and so forth is made freely available as well. You can just go and look them up in a book. So that would be an example of the spillover, like the design I was describing before. And so um, it's going to be really, really hard 
to, in fact, impossible to expect firms to fund that kind of research because they're not going to be able to appropriate the benefits from it. I mean, that's that, right. th- there's nothing horrible about that. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm neither defending, you know, wicked capitalists nor backing ardent socialists. It's simply a statement uh, of the fact that uh, these knowledge goods have got these properties um, that they can spill over, like I say, design the look and feel of that uh, can spill over in that way. Um, so, so as I say, that that that's the sort of um, the kind of conceptual point behind the public funding. Um, now, you then might say, "Oh well, hold on a moment. Shouldn't we then have loads and loads and loads of public funding? Because after all, there are all the <coughs> ways these spillovers are going to occur. And uh, uh, you know, what, what should stop you?" from ever wanting to limit those spillovers in the first place. Um, And the issue with that is that if you have public funding, you you have to have a sort of centralized series of decision makers. Um, And the minute you have a centralized series of decision makers who are going to decide that they're going to fund Project X and not Project Y, uh, and they're going to uh, have these metrics and not those metrics, then you provoke all manner of what economists rather politely call rent-seeking activities, which is to say people attempt to influence those types of decisions in the way that might potentially suit them. So you've got to have rules and regulations when you have centralized decision-making, but those rules and regulations come with a cost, which is that it might be difficult to have the kind of variety and have all the sort of flexibility and so forth that you might need, and those things you might need for to get more synergies. So the example of ARPA, which is a British um, agency uh, sort of copying uh, the American DARPA, uh, is an attempt to have the centralized public funding in order to help with those um, spillovers, but to make it sort of flexible enough so that um, these uh, synergies uh, might occur uh, and to let scientists, um, you know, uh, uh, work uh, uh, um, between different disciplines and so forth um, in in an attempt to try to encourage that other dimension um, of intangibles. The the most compelling example to me, not being a technologist, was the idea of funding open source software projects that seem to make the, the, the most sense given everything we've just talked about. Are, has that started happening yet? Are there target-rich areas in the economy for such a program as open source software? Yeah. So open source software, John, is an excellent example. Um, I mean, it is astonishing. Shane Greenstein at Harvard has done some astonishing work on the extent to which open source software, um, like Apache, for example, powers vast amounts uh, of the internet. I mean, we literally, you know, we couldn't do this, we couldn't record this podcast and people couldn't listen to the recording uh, without a lot of that open source software. So um, I think that is an example. Um, In terms of what else is on the horizon, Maybe after the um, COVID um, outbreak and the invention of these new generation of vaccines, um, many of which are now public information, maybe that might be the equivalent of a little bit of open source software as well. In other words, it would open up uh, the spillovers um, that would potentially um, be, be, be you know, v- very beneficial. Um, and if public funding uh, can benefit all of that, um, that would be a really good thing. But I want to caution against, John, um, being able to sort of pick um, various uh, uh, sort of topics and areas which are ripe for, ex- you know, exploitation, because it's just so difficult 
to guess what a successful innovation is going to be. And we talk in the book a little bit about the wheelie suitcase as an example of that. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. Uh, the, the, the next question comes from the discussion about intellectual property. And it's interesting, you talked about patent trolls in the book, and either it's happening with increasing frequency or it's now just starting to hit my newsfeed, but it seems to be happening more often. And, I, and I'm going to ask you a broad question, and I know it's different across every country, and, and maybe there are examples where uh, there's, there's models we could all learn from. But what changes need to be made to our patent laws, my own home bias being the US? You mentioned things like rollbacks of patents and software and business processes. Is that your suggestion for all IP or just publicly funded IP? Uh, or the, should the duration of patents be longer or shorter? And, um and again, are there any countries that are good examples of, of how it should work in the future? Yeah, that's that, that, that's an excellent series of questions. And um, uh, I'm not going to give you a, a, as good an answer to, as that question deserves, because I think these things are somewhat dependent. We are dependent upon the sector involved and the technology involved. We are broadly speaking, I think, in the camp of having a bit less IP protection rather than more. I think we worry a lot um, <clears throat> about the prospect of um, a lot of essentially wasteful activity that is chasing around um, IP and that it is attempting, you know, essentially, these are people who are arguing uh, not about the expanding the size of the cake, but breaking up the cake in some way and being able to block, uh, you, you know, development by being excessively litigious and, and so forth. And of course, you know, John, as you know, this isn't a new problem. So the the Wright brothers, um, who you know, gloriously invented powered flight were basically able to hold up the development of the early aviation industry in the US because they had a very broad patent uh, on control services on wings. And they had actually, as it turned out, a rather poor invention uh, for control services on wings, wing warping, which essentially twisted the wings around. But they, were managed, they managed to hold up um, by claiming that, that by, by claiming that patent, and that patent had been rather broadly drawn, they managed to hold up the development of aerolons, which were a much more um, efficient and much better um, invention. Uh, until they were successfully challenged, essentially, um, the military told them to sort of stop all of that. So, um, I, I think we don't want to see all of that. And this may be an area, funnily enough, where Europe might be a little bit ahead of the US, because in Europe. We don't have software patents, uh, and the general scope of patenting is much narrower uh, than it is in the US. Okay. And do you see any trends towards companies choosing not to patent a certain technology where you're, as you said, you're disclosing your intellectual property? At least in the past you were. You've talked about how in the book some patents are being structured, so they're revealing actually very little while trying to lock up a technology. But uh, uh, there seems to be a, a trade-off where the first mover advantage seems to be as powerful in some instances in uh, as the intellectual uh, technology patent. In, indeed. And, and I think, John, it comes back to the synergies point that actually what a lot of these patent trolls are is they are they are the exact opposite of synergies in other words they are just one often a legal firm who owns one patent or a right. thicket of patents and tries to hold everything up whereas what many companies are is 
is, as I say, they are the opposite of that, which is to say they may or may not have some patents, but they also have the other intangible assets that go with that, the ability to distribute and manufacture, the reputation for uh, and the relationships and so forth that they've built up. So um, I, I think the reason why – I'm not sure we've observed companies going for less patents or more patents, but I think thinking about the synergies between these intangible assets is the way to think about um, how those companies are going to deploy their intellectual uh, property, but in a way that means it's not going to necessarily leak out to um, other firms. Okay. Let's get into measurement. This is an incredibly interesting topic to me. As an analyst, I feel like I'm digesting a tidal wave of economic data every day and often wondering how accurate or meaningful the data is. Of the four issues of concern, you raise about the intangible economy, you talk about secular stagnation, and you've already referenced a little bit of what this century has been like and and believe that there's been secular stagnation mm. correlated to the rise of the intangible, uh, intangible economy. Are we measuring GDP properly? And I know it's a bit complicated. There's a lot of moving parts, but are we overstating it, understating it? And and what is the impact of that rise of intangible economy on that that number that we see quarterly? I I think we are moving slowly to measure GDP better, uh, but we're moving fairly slowly. That's the difficulty. And um, I think the way to think about it is that um, if we're going to measure GDP, we've got to measure investment correctly because investment is one of the important aspects of GDP. uh, And it's uh, uh, it's the thing which is going to bring future prosperity uh, for our nations. Um, right. and, and, and so when you say, well, how are we going to measure investment? Most of the investment measurement that we do in national accounts, which is to say behind GDP, was all devised basically in the 1930s. If you come to America, everybody tells you it was devised by a Harvard economist called Simon Kuznets. Uh, if you stay in England, everybody tells you that it was devised by Keynes. But in England, <laughs> but in England, we think Keynes invented absolutely everything. So um, I, I'm sure it was Kuznets rather than Keynes. But anyway, um, uh, it, 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 those kind of measurements of investment relied on the kind of uh, questionnaires and surveys that essentially uh, we still do today, which is you send out a question questionnaire to, I don't know, an airline, and you say to them, how much uh, are you buying? How many vehicles are you buying? They've got to buy all these refueling vehicles. How many aircraft are you buying? They've got to buy all of these aircraft. Uh, And that's a pretty good measure, therefore, of the kind of investment that they're doing. And then you cross-check it by going to Boeing or going to the specialist, uh, you you know, airport and, uh, uh, you know, airline vehicle fuel tanks and all the fuel manufacturers and all that kind of thing. Um, And you cross-check it that way. So you've got a nice check and you can get a dollars and cents feel for the amount of investment going on. However, if you go to airlines um, uh, nowadays or, or, or talk a little bit more to airlines and you go to their IT company, IT side, uh, you will find out that they're writing enormous amounts of software so that we can do all the booking that we do and they can coordinate the baggage and roster the crews, which is all very complicated and all that kind of thing. Um, so we need to know, therefore, how much they're investing in that software because, after all, their websites and so forth, like their, like their 
aircraft are an enduring source uh, of important assets, which are going to help you, you know keep the planes in the air and keep 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 the customers coming. Um, so we've got to be a little bit more canny as a statistical authority in finding out how much they're investing in those rather more intangible assets because they're rather harder to ask about and. Two more things on that, John, if I may. One is, um, to some extent, companies, let's take the example of software, they often buy in software, actually. So it's a little bit like saying, you know, how many, uh, uh, you know, how many aircraft are you buying? Uh, you say, what's your dollars and cents spending on software? The tricky bit is many companies, of course, have got a lot of in-house software writers um, who, 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 who develop uh, the software that they're doing. So they're asking them how much software they're buying in. They'll say, well, nothing, because we do it all in-house, which means that we've got to go and, um, if we want to measure investment, uh, measure the in-house activities. Right. And where that takes you is if you think about these intangible assets, as I say, the marketing, the design and so forth, they are often things which firms do in-house because after all, that's what they're good at. They're good at putting all this stuff together or they're particularly good at design or they're particularly good at you know writing some software and then marketing it. So the way that national accounts and GDP measures investment then um, has had to move over the years to as well as asking how much they're buying from the outside, asking how much they're spending inside the firms uh, and therefore getting a fix on how much intangible investment they're doing and statistical agencies have therefore had to get a little bit more a bit more sort of foxy if i may use that word a little bit more um uh, they've they've had to use different ways and do different things uh, in order to collect those those kind of numbers but they're moving in that in that direction so that in uh, gdp has got some of those things in it um but by no means all we think Okay, and I'm I'm going to get back later to this, the the accounting of investment for internal software and the concept of expensing versus capitalization. But first, at the risk of being redundant, a similar set of questions about productivity, which is so important downstream for standard of living and what's on everyone's mind right now, inflation. Absolutely. We measure. Do we measure productivity uh, properly? That you know, there's I, I every once in a while I'll see an article about is technology investing making us more productive as a country or not? Uh, how do you measure productivity in a an intangible rich economy? I'd imagine it's um, a little more difficult than in an agricultural economy where it was pretty straightforward. But how how are we doing on measurement of productivity? Um, we are do <laughs> a difficult subject, which we're attacking the best we can, I think, is the answer. Um, so in, in this economy, in the intangible rich economy, we're going to need to measure a much broader range of outputs than we would do in an, in an agricultural economy. Uh, and we're going to need to measure the inputs to those things, again, which are going to be broader, done within firms, all the kind of things we've been discussing. Uh uh, and so, I mean, it's going to be a harder task, um, but it's but you know we we can try to get at it to a certain extent. Um, so the productivity of entertainment, for example, um, is a very tricky one uh, to measure 
you know, uh, we all we could measure the revenues of Disney. We can measure the box office uh, uh, takes of people, uh, the, 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 of people going to the movies and so forth. Um, but equally, once people start watching movies at home or even creating their own movies on YouTube and posting them themselves, then we've got a lot of activity in the economy, which is in the intangible kind of you know knowledge entertainment creation space, um, but going to be difficult to measure as output. So I think there is a concern that these measurement issues uh, are getting harder and are getting harder and harder, um, uh, not least because uh, we're doing many more activities at home than we used to. Uh, and that's a little bit similar to what I was saying earlier on, John, about how it's much harder to measure activities within a firm for the reasons I was saying earlier on. In the same right. way, it's harder to measure activities within the household. Uh, and uh, so th there are all those challenges uh, there as well. Uh, so we may well be uh, under measuring productivity um, fairly severely, actually. Okay. And we, we've talked so far about the developed world. Let's talk for a second about emerging economies. I was mm. working in the wireless industry in the very early days in the, in the mid nineties. And it was interesting to observe that for countries that didn't already have a wired nation side, either through the air or cable buried in the ground, their transition to wireless was so fast and furious and it changed countries seemingly overnight. So what what does the rise of the intangible economy look like in an emerging market is uh, to the extent that it could be even more problematic or maybe they have some advantages because they're not overcoming legacy systems. Maybe there's an advantage from building things from scratch. Yeah. I, I mean, this is very well known, isn't it, John, in banking, where if you speak to legacy banks, the only thing that they complain about, well, they complain about a lot of things, but they particularly <laughs> complain about the fact that um, some idiot wrote a stupid piece of software five years ago, and they now have to write the software which connects to the software five years ago. So all of those legacy kind of issues are absolutely first order issues. Um, many developing countries don't face those issues because five years ago, they didn't have anything. Um, <laughs> right. And you see this in particular, um, I, 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 I don't know, John, if this is what you're referring to, countries like Kenya, for example, who never had a fixed phone line system, when the technology of cell phones, what in Britain we call mobile phones, when the technology of mobile phone cell phones came along, um, it became a bit of a no-brainer, really. There was no point in digging up the entire country and laying all of these cable. Uh, of they were actually able to network up the entire country uh, using mobile, using cell technology. Um, so there was an example, actually, of where the the, the lack of a legacy uh, rather helped them. But where that takes you, of course, um, is the point that, of, that, that, that many of these intangible assets that we talk about do need to ride on top of a tangible infrastructure. So again, going back to the Kenya example, um, m banking on your mobile phone, on your cell phone uh, in Kenya uh, is the way that everybody does banking there. Nobody's actually got a bank account and nobody you know, sends money, but, but there's, a, there's an amazing development, um, not done by any centralized authority or anything like that, essentially by the private sector um, of uh, uh, banking 
uh, via uh, mobile phones, via cell phones. And, and that, of course, going back to the earlier example, what do the banks do in, in that context? They're writing software, they're using databases and all of that. Uh, those are intangible assets, but they are riding on top of the very tangible assets uh, that is the uh, cell phone system. So there's an interaction between those things. Uh, and once uh, developing countries have got that tangible infrastructure, then we think that the intangible assets uh, can be scaled up quickly. And in the case, as I say, of Kenyan banking, uh, that's seen, I, I think, a tremendous improvement, actually, in the quality of people's lives, uh, because it, essentially they, they, they can go straight to that combination of tangible and intangible assets and get those very valuable banking services. Right. And that... That, that's similar to what happened in the wireless world, where just to use an example of uh, of backhaul, you know, where right now I don't think people appreciate that your call goes to a tower and then it pretty much goes down into the ground and mm. goes on the old network, which is fine, but you were never going to build that across Kenya or China. Yeah. Instead, you have those big towers with uh, sideways drums that send that microwave backhaul feed is as far as physics will allow and they were can network a country in a in a, a just a fraction of the time it took us to to wire our world let's jump for a second to uh the topic of inequality and i know there's big opportunity in education and healthcare for productivity improvement from ip investment and mm. it, that leads to this topic of inequality not just of income and wealth but of, as you say of esteem and place what can we do to stem the rise of inequality or even reverse it? It's something I'm terribly worried about as a lifelong student of economics, but I don't think the average voter who's not suffering from a decline in real wages themselves appreciates the role that inequality has played in social upheavals throughout history. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that and let you talk about the inequality aspect of the rise of the intangible economy. Yeah, thanks, John. I mean, this is a very thoughtful um, issue and 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 greater brains than us have sort of struggled with this with this question. Where I think we come in is pointing out that one of the consequences of the rise of the intangible economy will be inequality in a number of different dimensions. Let, let, let me go back to the scaling and the synergies and so forth that we're talking about. Earlier on, now Britain's great invention, as, as as all of your listeners will know, in fact, as anybody you know who lives on a remote planet far away in the galaxy uh, will have heard <laughs> of Britain's greatest invention, and that is, of course, Harry Potter. Right. Uh, and if you ask what is Harry Potter, it is it is purely an intangible asset, namely, you know, the the the, the terrific uh, uh, novel uh, that J.K. Rowling wrote. And if you ask, then where the sort of success of Harry Potter has been, I would describe it as being another example, if I may, John, of the synergies between the different intangible assets. So, for example, the script of the book goes with the software, which makes up the special effects in the movies. It goes with all the marketing, which goes with all of that, another intangible asset. It goes with, for example, the theatrical design that turns Harry Potter into a theatre, uh, you know, a, li a live theatre uh, uh, um, uh, ex experience, uh, which, right. uh, aside from the pandemic, uh, has been extremely successful uh, in lots <laughs> of different places. So it's that synergy, John, between all of those 
different intangible assets that we think, as I say, the, the sum of those uh, parts is is more than the, uh, the than the individual parts all put together. Now, uh, the reason for me rabbiting on about all this stuff is that, of course, that makes the possessors of these intangible assets and the specialist suppliers of these intangible assets extremely wealthy. So J.K. Rowling, who wrote the uh, novel, uh, has good luck to her, um, has become extremely wealthy uh, as as a reason for that. The uh, actor Daniel Ratcliffe, uh, you know, who played ha- uh, Harry Potter, again, good luck to him. He's become wealthy because of that. Um, but that that then gives you then the inequality. Uh, in the society as a product, as I say, of the synergies of these intangible um, assets. So that's one dimension of of inequality, uh, as I say, which comes with all of that. I think the second dimension of inequality, you you mentioned inequality of place and inequality of um, esteem. Um, Let me talk about place for a second, if I may, John. I mean, this is something I'm speaking to you at the moment from Great Britain. This is something we feel very strongly in Britain, where London has essentially steamed ahead of many other places uh, in Britain. And the intangible angle on that uh, is to ask the question, where do these spillovers, where do these synergies occur? And we think the answer is they overwhelmingly occur in cities, actually. That's where, you know, actors, to carry on the Harry Potter example, that's where actors are going to meet other actors and they're going to meet screenwriters and they're going to meet theatrical designers and software writers to do things on the movies and all those kind of things. So the economic advantage of cities is going to be compounded in an intangible economy. Uh, And when I say the economic advantage of cities, that is a rather polite way of saying there will be a heck of a lot more inequality uh, between cities where all this stuff is going on um, and between outside. So I think those are a couple of ways uh, in which um, the intangible economy is going to be associated um, with more inequality. And and I think it was the concept of the inequality of esteem that caused my mind to go off the map a little bit. And I wanted to ask you about a concept you know, we call here, maybe known this way everywhere, universal basic income, and whether, mm. you know, whether that factors into any of your potential recommendations or outcomes. Do you think it's a necessity or would implementation of UBI be kind of a, a failure of everything else that we're you know, trying to do? Well, I, I, I think we would probably say we'd see some other policies come before universal basic income. The, the reason is, is that economists' hackles go up a bit when you talk to them about universal basic income, essentially because we think it's badly targeted. So the fact that everybody gets it rich or poor, uh, may not be such a good thing. Uh, and the other thing okay. is we think it's good. We, we, we economists, many economists in the community of economists, I should say, um, think that it's going to be extremely expensive. So it seems to, to, to me at least one option. Uh, but before that, I would try some different options. So one obvious option, and again, forgive me, John, for giving a rather British example, but hopefully this will um, uh, uh, this this will be sort of salient to people. It goes back to the cities issue. Um, the size of cities is strongly limited in the UK by planning regulations. Those planning regulations essentially go back to the end of the Second World War and make it extraordinarily difficult to build more or less anything um, in in large uh, uh, 
uh, urban areas. Those of you um, who can remember traveling uh, and have visited London um, will know that London is remarkably low rise for a modern city. There are a few more skyscrapers, but relative to you know Manhattan and Shanghai and other places, it's remarkably low rise. And the whole reason for that is, of course, planning, uh, that, it, that it's, it's very, very hard uh, to get uh, planning permission to build more. Um, to, to build higher buildings. Now, that is fine because we want to preserve the historical integrity and the quality of life in our cities. But to the extent that that constrains cities from getting bigger, that is a clampdown on the intangible economy. It prevents the intangible economy expanding. And it raises, I think, the inequality, going back, John, to your earlier question. It raises the inequality because the uh, 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 if all the opportunities are in built-up cities for the spillovers and synergies reasons I was talking about earlier on, uh, and if people therefore want to move to those cities, but it's incredibly hard to do so, uh, then that preserves the inequality because that means only those uh, who are wealthy already are going to be able to afford the high house prices uh, that uh, that are going to be the outcome of these intangible kind of interactions. So um, universal basic income is certainly on the table because it's very important uh, that we don't undermine social consensus uh, in capitalist economies by having all of this inequality. Um, but I think we'd go probably for some other policies first. Perfect. And, and a perfect transition to the next question on my list, which is about investment, because the, uh, in my notes, I wrote down that affordable housing is one of those issues, that, and you kind of touched on that, and that's self-evident in terms of understanding what it is. Can you talk about what you mean by the different infrastructure that's needed in this concept of, of workspace? It's I think it probably launches over just what you were just talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing which has undermined the conventional wisdom around cities and around the kind of uh, economies that come from agglomeration uh, is the pandemic. Um, because you might say, well, we've managed perfectly well uh, without having to live in cities. Lots of people have moved away from you know, Manhattan and built up areas like that and have now got a perfectly nice life um, you know, doing work up and down the screen. Um, we think, at least maybe this is us in stodgy old Britain, I don't know. Um, we think that that is an evolution, actually, to more working outside of cities. But we think that the economic advantages, as I say, of the synergies and the spillovers are still going to be there and might be difficult uh, to keep uh, on the screen. That said, anything that improves, going back to the Kenya example, John, I think, anything improves the network issues that you were mentioning earlier on uh, is going to help break down some of those uh, barriers. So, you know, we're going to have more people be able to participate if networks are better and and, and um, uh, videos are better and all those kinds of things. Uh, all that stuff uh, are going to break, it should break down those barriers um, and help with that kind of uh, inequality. So I think that's one of the sort of infrastructure changes uh, that we need to try to improve things a bit. Thank you. And, and Professor Haskell, this next one was is was tough for me to word this question. It has to do with, you talk about entities such as states and corporations needing authority and some centralized control to provide the goods that will benefit their citizens and employees. It, it seems I'm struggling with this tension between more control at the central level at, at a government level versus control at the corporate level. And what tools, just because of your unique position in a monetary authority, would that monetary authority need? Is it different tools? 
you, you talk in the book, which I found fascinating about the diminished power of some of those monetary tools in an increasingly intangible economy because intangibles aren't typically eligible for debt financing. Do you need mm. uh, different, more powers, more tools? Just if you could try to help me understand that uh, that dynamic, I'd, I'd be appreciative. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things, and, and this is a common feature in Europe, uh, as it is in America, uh, in monetary policy, is that politicians delegate monetary policy to independent central banks. And, and, and they do that um, because part of the difficulty that they face um, is they need to uh, is that uh, if people don't trust politicians anymore, they think that what politicians are going to do is they're going to pump up the economy just before the election, and then there's roaring inflation just after the election, and then we get into a very bad equilibrium where even the good, honest politicians uh, are, are crowded out essentially um, by the dishonest politicians because everybody expects the worst. So, um, delegating those things to monetary to independent. Um, monetary policy makers, and I, I have the great privilege to be one of those uh, sitting on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, as I do in the UK, um, it is a way of trying then to get some reputation uh, in the economy to avoid that kind of outcome. However, once one does all of that, uh, in the context of a world with very low interest rates, then it becomes much more difficult for even independent bankers to support the economy when interest rate cuts are needed, uh, when interest rates are already low. Um, so part of the issue uh, we think confronting modern, modern day economies uh, is the need to try to get back some of that stability uh, when there are adverse shocks which hit the economy, which monetary policy can no longer provide. And therefore, we make some suggestions on the fiscal side um, about having more what economists call automatic stabilizers, uh, which is to say attempting to give the economy a little bit more resilience so that when it goes into um, recessions, uh, there's more spending. So, for example, if there are more progressive uh, uh, tax rates, uh, then there are basically tax cuts when the economy goes into recession, which promotes spending and tax increases when the economy booms again, uh, uh, which brings down spending. Um, so we think that some of those changes might help uh, the kind of the authority and control which has been lost uh, by some central banks uh, and restore that um, uh, and restore that in a way that would help the stability of the economy. Okay. And, and this is my second to last question and it's kind of an all-encompassing one. So take as, as much time as you want with it. Mm. Since you since you brought up Harry Potter, if uh, you had a magic wand or absolute power for a day, what, <laughs> right. what what would you? What are the system design changes uh, that you would make to strike the right balance between quantity and quality of investment? And feel and don't be shy about using the UK as as the example again. Um, I think we need so a number of things. Um, I think we need to extend support from the for the intangible economy uh, a little bit further. Um, one issue in the UK, uh, and I think this is a US issue as well, John. So I think this may resonate with your US listeners. Is the quality of education training um, is has been a just an 
ongoing worry uh, in the UK and an ongoing feeling in the UK uh, that something has gone wrong there. And, And training by firms seems to us to be a rather neglected area. After all, if a firm trains somebody uh, and they go off elsewhere, that's exactly like those kind of spillovers that we were talking about earlier right, on the spillovers of design. Right. Um, uh, now, firms do train people uh, uh, for reasons which economists often don't quite understand uh, because they may not benefit from it. Um, but we think giving credit to firms who train people would be helpful as well because it would help solve those kind of spillover issues. So I think that's one thing. I, I think the second thing um, that I would say um, would be about the planning. Um, ag- again, I won't repeat what I just said, but but again, visitors to Britain will notice the remarkable inequality uh, between London and other uh, uh, other places in the UK. And it's just, I, look, listen, I live in London, so <laughs> I have those advantages. Right. But it just isn't fair, it seems to me, uh, that other places are rather disadvantaged. Um, I, I'll say one other thing, which again is a little bit sort of techie. So forgive me for being a little bit in the weeds, but it's around banking reform. And it's around getting banks to start lending more to intangible intensive businesses. About 80% of bank lending in the UK is for mortgages and about another 5% is for uh, commercial real estate. That's 85% is basically going on property. Uh, There's remarkably little funding going on uh, of actual businesses and some reforms around um, pension funds here uh, who are very um, uh, held back in their regulation about the amount that they can invest essentially uh, in intangible intensive businesses. Uh, Those would go a very, very long way. Those reforms in the 1970s in the US a number of scholars have traced actually to the success of Silicon Valley uh, and the venture capital ecosystem that is around there. Uh, and so if we could have a bit of that in the UK, I think that would be really helpful. So in the UK, pensions are uh, restricted I'll use the word venture capital instead of intangible, and how much they can invest in that space. Uh, but basically, that's right. A series of, you know, well-intentioned but rather complicated regulations means that pension funds uh, can invest almost nothing uh, in the kind of, uh, you know, unlisted equities and things like that, um, where you'd think that intangible capitalists are attempting to raise money. Pension funds are very concentrated in, you know, government bonds and, you know, listed securities uh, of sort of very traditional companies. And that's fine because we don't want, you know, our pensions to be undermined. Um, But at the margin, I think there's a lot more that pension funds could do. And, and there's so much money there um, in, in, in all of our developed economies. Um, has this topic become a separate course yet in your university? It seems inevitable, like I'm witnessing the early days of behavioral economics growing into its own field of study. Um, it's kind of you to ask, John. I'll come at that a slightly different way, if you'll forgive me, which is that I work at a business school. And I think one of the difficulties that business schools often have is to get the economists to talk meaningfully to the management scholars or get the industrial sociologists to talk to the management scholars and talk to the economists and the people interested in um, you know, managing change and all those kinds of things. And so what I think the intangibles framework does is it is a way of getting those different areas of business schools to talk to each other a little bit. So when I talk about, you know, 
uh, uh, Tim Cook as being a supply chain manager, as being an intangible asset, uh, uh, an important intangible asset for Apple, that resonates with someone who, for example, teaches supply chain management. They don't use those words, intangible assets, but they completely get that that there is a thing called supply chain management, which economists would view as, as an intangible asset they view in a different kind of way. So I think it's a common language and maybe a common framework uh, that would help not only business school professors talk to each other, but much more importantly, uh, students at business schools kind of realize how all that stuff knits together. Okay. Well, Professor Haskell, what would a, a smarter interviewer than myself have asked you uh, with before I let you off uh, about this book? Or, or what else do you want to say about the book to further entice people to get it when it, when it comes out? Um, it's ve- it's very kind of you, and you've been a very smart interviewer. Um, I guess I would just repeat, if I may, John, the point about the top companies, the point about how the economy has changed enormously. Again, to, to, so that this is sort of salient uh, to people. Um, I have in front of me the accountants, Price Water Waterhouse Coopers, um, do every year the ranking of the world's top companies, and the top five companies in their latest numbers, which is March 2021. That's last year. The, the, the stuff will come out very soon. The top five companies were Apple, Saudi Aramco, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. Facebook is number six. Uh, and again, back to what I was saying before, if I may, John, Saudi Aramco, of course, is a, that's the Saudi Arabian oil and gas company. They are right. a very tangible company. They've got oil refineries and oil rigs and vehicles to move them around and ships and all that kind of thing. Very, very tangible. But those other companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, they're entirely intangible companies. And so we think uh, that uh, understanding the intangible world uh, is going to be a really good way in to understanding the modern world uh, and modern businesses and the prospects for our economy. And if our book, our books, both of our books help people to uh, uh, have a little bit more understanding, uh, we'd be really pleased. And that topic of these large companies, they're not just large, they're, they're dominant. You bring that up in the book on the topic of um, stagnation, that when you have no competition, there's just less need to invest. And if it's an intangible rich economy, we're not investing in intangibles, you, you get lower growth. Is, am I interpreting that correctly yeah, from the book? Yes. So what, what we've seen is a couple of things is we've seen this um, gradual increase, uh, well, quite fast increase in intangible investment, going back to what we were saying earlier on, um, stalled somewhat along around the financial crisis. So we think part of the difficulty is that uh, with inadequate financial systems, for example, the pension fund regulation I was mentioning uh, just a little just a little while ago, um, it's much more difficult uh, for companies to invest in intangible assets, much much more difficult than it should do, uh, and with a, a dysfunctional banking system, it's much harder for startups to raise money. Uh, And what that means is the competitive process is thereby going to be inhibited because the thing that we we want, I think, as consumers um, uh, is we want an even better Google to come, an even better Facebook to come, an even better Amazon uh, to come uh, come along. And as long as we have a system which uh, does not uh, 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 u
those uh, new companies to arise because they can't get the finance, they can't live in the cities uh, where they might start, um, they can't get uh, uh, the, the, the kind of capital backing that those companies get. If they can't get any of those things, uh, we're not going to have that dynamism upon which a growing economy depends. On that note, Professor Haskell, I'm honored to have the opportunity to introduce this most recent book to followers of the New Books Network. Thank you so very much for your time. Thanks very much, John. Absolute pleasure.